Amen. Well, good morning again, church. Uh, today we're going to begin in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, so if you guys want to go ahead and turn to Galatians 3, we're going to be going through verses uh, 1 and uh, all the way through 14 today. Today uh, is, is a transition period from, again, what we talked about our first Sunday, uh, it just beginning the series in Galatians, uh, transitioning from the, the historical part, the stories that Paul was telling with regard to his interactions with the other apostles, and we're moving now into uh, the, the exposition of the gospel, the exposition of justification by faith. This is Paul's defense, really, of what the church is getting wrong. Paul's exhortations to the church to help them understand how they're departing from the gospel. So we'll be going through this for about the next uh, four weeks or so. I'm going to begin here with a quote. This is again from John Webster. I quoted him last week. Growth in the Christian life is simply growth in seeing that the gospel is true. That Jesus Christ is the preeminent reality of all things. There's no technique here, no special insight for which we must hope, no extra illumination, which we might expect. It's simply a matter of listening to the gospel often enough and hard enough until it comes to take up residence in our hearts and minds and desires. Paul's letter to the Galatians is demonstrative of this reality. Uh, just when you think you've, you've got the best thing you could possibly get, right? We talked about this a bit last week. Just when you think that you, you, you've, 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 you've plumbed everything that's in the gospel. Yeah, we're forgiven. We're, we're not under the judgment of God anymore. You go in and there's something else. Sometimes it's a, a further beauty of the gospel. It's a deepening of the gospel's beauty to us. It's a deepening, a, a further vision of Jesus Christ, a clearer understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Our vision coming into accordance with the reality of who Jesus is. Sometimes, like with what we read with Peter last week, it's darkness. But it's not darkness in Jesus. It's darkness in us. It's darkness in our hearts. It's ways in which our minds or our habits or interactions with others is not in accordance with the gospel. And the reason for this is because the gospel is not just an addendum, right? It's not something that's put in addition to something to make it better. No. The gospel is the declaration of God which brings life out of death. It calls into being something from nothing. And it happens where the corrupting forces of evil have left their mark. The gospel is an ever unfolding wonder. And in the faithful hearing of it, by the work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of Christ's church, we are conformed, miraculously conformed, into the likeness of the one who saved us into the likeness of Jesus. As 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, from one degree of glory to another. So if you would read with me right now, again, it's Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit 
by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word. Let's please play with me. Oh, holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for meeting with us and that as we gather together today, we gather in faith and we gather confidence that you are able and you desire to shape us, to mold us, to conform us to the image of Christ. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Enliven our ears and Holy Spirit, come. Bless my mouth. Bless the words of my mouth, Lord. Holy Spirit, do what we cannot do in and of ourselves, which is to expose the crevices of our hearts and our minds that are darkened with the stain of sin and bring your cleansing righteousness, the cleansing righteousness of Jesus Christ, the cleansing watch of, the, of, your, of you, Holy Spirit, to abolish that in us which is not pleasing your sight, that which does not bring flourishing and fruitfulness and goodness in your world and make, in us, and make of us a people pleasing in your sight together. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What Paul drives at in today's text is really one point, continuing on from what we talked about last week, that saving faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ is not just what provides our entrance into the family of God through forgiveness of sins and the appeasement of divine judgment, but it's also what carries us through the Christian life all the way onto glory, are being conformed as a people into the likeness of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. It is faith in this one, Jesus Christ, from beginning to end. We never outgrow this reality. 
Now remember what we talked about briefly last week. Uh, the, the, this isn't faith. This isn't just a cognitive assent. It's not just you know, putting a check. Yes, I believe that Jesus died for my, my sins. Right? It's, there's, the, the reformers had this threefold understanding of faith. It's the message of the gospel itself. It's the conviction that the gospel itself is true and of the importance of the gospel. And then it's the, the obedience of faith. It's a, the sense of allegiance to follow through with what the gospel demands of us. All of these things are what are included in a saving faith. And what we see today, which, which is particularly remarkable, is that this is the message all the way from the beginning of Scripture. All the way from Genesis on through the books of the kings and the prophets, up to the coming of Jesus and on the, all the way up to Revelation. The whole of Scripture declares that one is made right before a holy God. It is one unified message. Not by any works of the law of our hands, but by faith in the one that God promised would end our continuous rebellion and heal and restore our sin-ridden world. Salvation through faith alone in the coming Messiah has been God's plan and proclamation from the beginning. And we're going to cover this under three headings. Uh, The first one is perfected by faith. The second one, one new family through faith. And the third Christ the Redeemer. We'll start with perfected by faith, and we're going to go through uh, verses 1 through 5. Um, we'll go ahead and read the passages here again. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? As I said earlier, Paul's moving in this chapter from his discussion about his encounters with the other apostles to directly addressing the issues that are at the heart of what's going on in the church of Galatia. He begins with communicating his astonishment, again, at the Galatians turning away from the truth of the gospel. And he does it in no uncertain terms. He starts off saying, who has bewitched you? Now, it's not a question because Paul knows very well who's bewitched the people. It's these false teachers. It's, not, it's a rhetorical question. And the rhetoric is directed towards the teachers. And it's sorcery language. You've been bewitched. If you, if you think about it from Paul's view of the world, it's demonic. There, there, there is something corrupt, something evil that has snuck in and has changed how you see Jesus and how you see yourselves and who you see those around you. And apparently it's the same sort of thing, this teaching is the same sort of thing that was going on in the descriptions of Paul's encounter with Peter in the previous chapter. The things that were being taught by the circumcision party that we talked about last week. But his language here is strong on so many levels, as it is to the entire letter. Listen to the language here of, Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So the picture there is, is, is literally of a, of a placard, right? They would do this in Roman times where you'd, you'd post up something, and it would be like you see things on a phone post, electric poles around here. There's a concert going on over here, or there's a public announcement like this. It'd be a placard that was placed, so it'd say, so-and-so is about to get crucified, or so-and-so was crucified, or so-and-so is being summoned to a court. It was a very public thing, 
And what Paul says is, Jesus Christ, the monumental reality of Jesus Christ crucified was proclaimed to you, and you've forgotten it. And you've abandoned it. And how is it that they got it wrong? Well, in short, Paul's concern is with the fact that though the Galatians began with faith in Jesus Christ, they were being compelled to act somehow as though they had to be finished or perfected or that their life had to go on continually by works of the law, no longer by faith. And this point can't be lost on us because it's a perennial temptation for all of us. There's nothing else that saves, nothing that makes us right before a holy God apart from faith. I think most of us in here, that's by, by now at least, as we're going through Galatians, it should be obvious. But faith doesn't just take back seat after that point, only to be replaced by human exertion, only to be replaced by our actions, our will, and then sustained by our ability to make sure we keep everything in alignment with God's purposes. Paul's reason for being so adamant about this is that the whole of the Christian life, the life lived in obedience to Christ and in conformity with him, it's not shaped by our exertion, our efforts, our self-righteousness, but it's worked out in us by the Spirit through faith. It's God's work in us from beginning to end. Faith that God the Father sent his Son to be the sin bearer for us. Faith that Jesus is the one who he says he is and thus that he will complete what he says he will complete. And faith that the Spirit is the one who, along with all those who call upon the name of the Lord, brings this particular people to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. To press into anything else to accomplish this end is to revert back to the futile way of life that we all had embraced before we became God's people. It's faith from beginning to end, and Paul has a lot more to say about the Spirit uh, that he's going to cover more in chapters 4 and 5, so I won't get into much of that right now. But for our text today, it is essential to see what the Spirit does in the life of the church, namely, uniting a people to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ through the gospel And as I've mentioned several times already this morning, conforming their lives to the life of Jesus. So let's go. That leads into our next point. One new family through faith. This is going to be going through uh, from verses 6 to 12. As mentioned at the beginning, one of the most stunning things about the Bible is its unity. The unified message of Scripture. That is the way in which, despite the fact that it's written by a variety of authors over the span of millennia in four different languages. The Old Testament is written in Aramaic and Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek, but there's little bits of Aramaic words and names and Latin names thrown in there. Despite all of these things, there's a unified message to it. And it testifies to the fact that this text that we hold in front of us, this text that we appeal to every Sunday when we gather, Every time you sit down at your dinner table with your family and you're doing family devotions, every time you go and you have a, a devotional time, every time you open up scripture, you read not simply human words, but divine words. The word of God himself, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, breathed out by God. 
And again, as I said already, one of the implications of this is that Scripture is not going to contradict itself. It's a united message. You're not going to have one message on one side and then another at the end of it. Now, one can imagine, though, that these Gentile believers who are they're unfamiliar with, uh, maybe they're familiar with certain aspects of, the Judeo- of, the Judeo- the, of Judaism, but that they would be hungry to hear from other teachers, want to learn more about this faith that, is, that they've come into. And they probably received any teaching at that point that seemed to stem from Scripture. Uh, I, I remember this is a brief vignette. Uh, when Amber and I got married, we at first we went to India for about seven weeks, and uh, God, it was it was a miserable week. Uh, the, the whole it was a great time, but this this particular week was horrible. I was recovering from Giardia. I was sick as a dog. The medication that I took for Giardia made, uh, gave me hallucinations, so I didn't take it anymore. So I was just taking garlic pills, uh, trying to recover from this this awful illness. I lost like 20 pounds, I think, in two days. It was horrible. Um, and during that time, uh, a brother who was with the, the sort of missions organization that we were with while we were down there said, hey, we want to take you down uh, up to the uh, state that's right above Tamil Nadu, and we want you to go and just see the different church work that we're doing up there. So we go up there. I'm miserable. I'm cold. I have this horrible fever. I feel disgusting. And we get there. Uh, we travel there from 2 in the morning to we get there about 6.30 in the morning. I haven't slept the entire time. I'm freezing cold. I'm feeling miserable. I don't want to eat anything. And we get in there, and uh, this dear brother, Rufus, walks up to me and says, hey, brother, you're going to be teaching today. And I was like, oh, great, cool. Uh, well, what am I, what am I going to be teaching? And he says, uh, I don't know. Talk about youth ministry. And I was like, youth ministry? I was like, I don't even believe in youth ministry. Like, what, what? you're going to, you're going to ask me, okay, all right, man. Uh, what, when am I going to be doing this? And he says, uh, about nine o'clock. <laughs> it's about seven o'clock. He says, nine o'clock, you better be ready. And I'm like, well, how long, how much teaching are you looking for? He says, about three hours, you know, keep it short. And I'm like, so I, I thought, all right, so I take a one-hour nap. I open up my Bible, and I'm like, God, there's nothing I have to give. I've taken three years of Bible college at this time, and I, again, by conviction, I just don't even believe in what they're asking me to talk about. So, well, I guess I'll talk about family. And so this guy who's been married seven months, me, uh, decides to come and talk to a group of missionaries and Bible teachers about the importance of family and the importance of prioritizing family in the work of mission, the work of planting churches. I never planted a church. I've been married all of seven months. And this chump kid comes up and he's going to teach three hours to to this group of pastors about, you know, the, the beauty of marriage and how you should prioritize your life with your wife and all these sort of things. I didn't have any kids at the time. It was a joke. (laughs) But somehow, God used this brief time, honestly, miraculously used this brief time. I was able to go for three hours and talk about stuff. Um, And these men are all sitting in probably a room that was probably close to what we have here today. And these guys were, were silent the entire time. I had a translator who was, th- that helped to fill in some of the time. <laughs> um, so he's translating everything I'm saying. 
And these men were all ears the entire time. It was, it was incredibly humbling to watch the hunger of these men. Um, I don't know that I mentioned the name of Jesus once. I don't know if I talked about the gospel at all. I didn't have any sort of nuance or, or you know, uh, anything really that I think would have been of lasting value to these guys. I hope they had different teachers coming after I did to kind of clean up some of the mess that I might have left with these guys. But they were ecstatic. They were just so passionate to hear about something that would give them uh, strengthening and equip them for the work that they were doing. And in a way, I envision all the early Gentiles being like this, right? You envision all the Gentile churches sort of being like, we want to hear more about this Jesus, and we want to learn more about how to live a life that is pleasing in his sight. How do we represent him well to the world that we're in? But the fact that the words of God proved to be, you know, unified in their purpose, that they stem from God, They are his very word. It doesn't prevent bad teachers from coming in and infiltrating the church and either misconstruing the message or just not preaching the message in its totality. Um, What I did, I think, was relatively harmless. I I don't think I gave any, like, heretical things or anything to the church. However, the church has, ever since its inception, wrestled with things like the identity of who Jesus Christ is, the extent of Jesus Christ's work, and a big one right from the beginning because... It was this Jew and Gentile relationship that was coming together. What is the relationship between what we call the Old Testament and then what we call today also the New Testament? Uh, There was an entire uh, teaching that was existent in the early church called Marcionism. And all Marcionism was was basically declaring that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were not the same God. There was a God of the Old Testament that was kind of the God of material things, and he was really cruel. He was all about justice. And then he had the God of the New Testament that was Jesus, and Jesus was the God of love and ethereal things and compassion and nice stuff. And Martian said, there's no way you can combine these two things. There's no way that this God is the same God. So this has been an issue forever. (laughs) um, How do we understand what the Old Testament teaches and how do we understand how Scripture as a whole testifies to the one gospel? And Paul's going to tell us, and he's going to show us, give us an example of what it is to run through Scripture and say, no, it is a unified message. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New, and the plan has been the same all along. Now see how he proceeds about, how he goes about doing this. Um, So we're going to start in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Notice the really important, two pertinent things here, specifically related to what Paul's talking about. He goes to the Old Testament. He doesn't just go anywhere. He goes to the beginning, to Genesis 15. And he points this out, that the gospel which was promised to Abraham was received with faith. But that this message was not regarding Just the reception of the gospel. It wasn't just regarding faith, but that the Gentiles would be also justified by this faith. Not through assimilation into the Jewish community, because there was no Jewish community at that time. Not through obedience to the law, because the law had not even been given yet 
Moses wasn't a twinkle in his mother's eye. Moses' mother wasn't a twinkle in her mother's eye. I mean, this, this was so far in advance, so far beforehand. Not through any of these things, but through faith alone. And not faith in Abraham even, but faith in the one in whom Abraham had placed his faith. The one who would fulfill every promise in his perfect timing. The promise of the gospel is not only the promise of justification by faith, but, as we mentioned last week, the promise of blessing for the nations, the promise of new life for the nations, the making of one people, the blessing of being a people united under the one true God, and then ultimately the blessing of this new people co-laboring together with one another under God's work of renewal in all the world. Now, so far, Paul, in these passages here, has been focused on building up the believers and describing the gospel, discussing, about, uh, the, uh, discussing blessings that accompany saving faith for Jews and Gentiles. But now he continues to talk in the Old Testament, to go from the Old Testament, but he moves to addressing the false teachers and their departure from God's intended purposes. Paul's going to return to the notion of blessing in a little bit at the end of our section. But before he does this, he flips the script and discusses not blessing, but curses. So let's go through verses 10 through 12, starting in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And do them. Let's stop there. Does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. He's, Paul's, uh, and we'll go to the next verse now, sorry, uh, verse 11. Um, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Now there's, we, we don't have time to look through all these Old Testament passages but basically, uh, Paul quotes once from Deuteronomy, chapter 27, verse 26. And then he quotes from Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. And then he quotes from Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 5. And he's just saying, guys, if by adherence to the law, you think you're going to attain right standing before God, you're cursing yourself twice over. You're cursing yourself because you who strive toward God by works of the law or works of the flesh can't only fulfill your obligation to fulfill the law because no one can keep the law perfectly. No one can maintain it perfectly or flawlessly. But by doing that, you forsake the only hope of being declared right before God. Paul is saying here the law was never intended in the first place to bring about the righteousness of God. It's a demonstration of God's grace in the world. It's a demonstration also of humanity's sin. And Sam's going to talk about this next week, so I'm not going to go into it in depth today. But the law was never intended to make a people righteous. The law was intended to show our depravity and to show God's goodness, his holiness to the world. The curse of the law, as we read in verse 3, I'm sorry, in verse 10 and verse 13, is on everyone who cannot fulfill all the requirements of the law. And since no one can do this, to pursue justification by this, it's a dead end. It's a downward spiral. But then, 
If it is by faith, as Paul mentioned above, he quotes Abraham, the passage with Abraham. He quotes Habakkuk, which is in the same vein. Habakkuk is wrestling with a people that are attacking the Jewish community. And he says, God, the unrighteous are attacking the righteous. When are you going to intervene? And God says, the righteous will live by faith. Those who wait upon the Lord. It is a waiting upon the Lord to which you were called, Habakkuk. But if it's by this faith, as Paul mentioned, faith in what? How does one escape the curse of the law? And Paul's one answer brings us to our, our next point, which is Christ, the Messiah, Christ, the Redeemer. Verse 12. But the, uh, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Pause. One last section of the Old Testament that we're going to attend to today. And that passage comes from Deuteronomy 21-23. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to go ahead and read it to you guys. It says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a man hanged is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The verse to which Paul refers is a gruesome one, right? It's, it's this man commits, this man or this woman, this person commits an act that is worthy of death. They, do, they have a public execution, this public execution by stoning. And then they take this man. The command isn't to hang the man. That's, that's one thing that's interesting about this text. God doesn't say hang the man. It says, if you take this man and hang him, And the hanging of the man was meant to be a sign of shame. It was meant to be a sign of this man is under the curse of God. The command was actually to take the person down from the tree, to not let the person remain there overnight because it was an accursed thing. To see a man held up on a tree, that was a sign, that was a display of the shame of the corruption, of the guilt of sin, and before holy God, the just judgment that comes upon sin. And this, astonishingly, is precisely where Paul says our faith is to be directed to the one who was and is publicly portrayed as crucified, cursed, not just cursed, made a curse, that this one would be a fixture of the guilt, shame, corruption, and just judgment of God. But the thing is, this one is declared so, not on the basis of anything that he had done, but in the place of ruined humanity, on our behalf, as it says in verse 13. 
Follow the logic of the text with me. You get the what. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Redeemed us is the main verb. How? How did he do it? He did it by becoming a curse for us on our behalf and in our place. And then Paul brings the whole thing full circle with what he was talking about at the beginning by saying, why? What was accomplished in what was done and what Jesus did for us? And those were two things. In order that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles and that the promised Holy Spirit would be received through faith. What the law could never do, what the law was helpless to do, and what humanity, therefore, was helpless to do was accomplished by the obedience of the Son of God and is accomplished by faith in this one, in this Son. And what does this mean for any of us who are here today? And I think that the biggest thing for us to take away is, frankly, just the need to have the cross to have Jesus publicly portrayed day in, day out, in everything. The centrality of the cross cannot be minimized when you read the letter to the Galatians. Just chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Grace to you. This is Paul's greeting to the church of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Chapter 2, verse 20, which we discussed last week. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. From our text today, chapter 3, verse 1. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Chapter 5, verse 26. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And earlier in that chapter, he'll mention the offense of the cross. The offense of Christ crucified. And then finally, the last chapter. Chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except to boast... In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Remember what we read earlier in verse 8, that the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham? We need to understand that I think from this text and from other texts like it, we can't understand the message of the New Testament, of the Old Testament, the message of scripture, what God is screaming out to the world unless we understand the gospel, unless we understand the cross of Christ, and unless we understand Christ crucified on our behalf. We need the whole of Scripture to understand the gospel, but we need the gospel to frame the whole of Scripture, or else we miss the message. The offense of the cross, beloved, is not a new notion. The notion that the coming Messiah would be made a curse that the coming king to redeem the world would be made a curse on behalf of sinful humanity was probably a deeper offense to the Jews of Paul's day than it is a scandal to the modern minds in our day. Consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians from a different letter, chapter 1, verse 22 through 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You see the polarities that Paul addresses here? He covers the whole spectrum. The wise Greeks on the one side and the Jews who are seeking signs of power on the other. The church carries the message of the cross wherever she goes. Or the church must carry the message of the cross wherever she goes. It's the thing that defines her. It is a life when it's defined by the gospel, which defies the powers of this age, which confounds the powers of this age. It's a declaration of life attained through death, not our death, but the death of another. It's a message, a declaration of the ultimacy of self-giving love. Again, not our love, not our ability to love, but the love of another, the one who would love us and lay down his life for us. And it's ultimately the message of not just the death, but of the lordship of the risen one who loved us and gave himself up for us. The message is folly for the unbelieving world, but it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And make no mistake, the message offends. It is patently offensive. But it's offensive because it shapes the life of a people. Again, like I said, it's not an addendum to your already prosperous life. It's not an addendum. It's not something in addition to all the good world, uh, ways in which you see the world, all the ways in which you inhabit the world. It's not an affirmation in addition to all these other things you kind of bring in to sort of piece together your existence. It's not about private faith, though it involves private faith. It's not about prayer closet spirituality. The statement, Jesus Christ is Lord, and the public portrayal of him crucified and the message of the cross is a statement about the cosmos. It's a statement about who made the cosmos. It's a statement about how the cosmos are made new. And it's a statement about how we, as a sin-ruined people, aren't just brought to be forgiven, aren't just brought to be pardoned, but who are brought to participate with one another, reconcile to one another in the cross. And that message lays a claim on all peoples at all times. It's the goal. What the gospel accomplishes is the goal of every political system that has ever existed, of every affinity group that has ever existed, of any person who's tried to create some semblance of peace with intentions in a family. The gospel accomplishes the desire of the nations. And only the gospel accomplishes the desire of the nations. And this is why it's offensive, brothers and sisters, because Jesus is Lord. And again, the statement of the cross is just as much a political statement today as it was in Paul's day. To say Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not. And it's also to say you are not. It's also to say I am not. That I don't get to frame life like I want to frame it that I have to hear things that offend me, that I have to have my conscience pierced, and that I contribute just as much to the brokenness and the sickness of things that I see around me as much as the next guy. It is a politics. It is a way of being in the world. It is a culture that trains us to be citizens not of this world, not of this city, but the city that is to come, the city that is unshakable, 
the city whose founder and builder is God himself. Around this time of tumult, beloved, in this time of enormous difficulty, in this time of tension, cultural turmoil, and all the rest, we have in Christ, we have in the gospel, an unshakable promise, the unshakable promise of his presence, of his power, of his undying love. But it comes at a cost because we are crucified with Christ. Our ways are crucified with Christ. But again, like we said last week, it doesn't end with death. It ends with renewal. It ends with restoration. The gospel is always all things being made new. And in him, in this one, in Jesus Christ alone, we find this power, we find this message, find the desire of our hearts and the desire of every heart. Let's pray for the faithfulness and the strength to carry this message forth with joy, with humility, with a spirit of sacrifice in a world that so desperately needs it right now. Please play with me.